A few years back, it was after a, a draining two and a half week, but action-packed missions trip to Eastern Europe in a strange and foreign land called Slovakia. After this long trip, Tara and I went on an epic 16-day trek through Europe. Ten countries, ten plane flights, countless trains and buses, two rental cars to go on top of that. We explored the ancient Roman ruins and also colorful cities perched on sea cliffs indulged in Italian food that was heavenly in its nature, not to mention a Vespa ride through Tuscany where it ended up with Terra covered polka dot bug bites all over. She's so sweet and apparently the mosquitoes would agree. We strolled through the streets of Paris soaking in the tower and the museums and life bursting forth on the Sin River, not to mention a heat wave and also the cancellation of a riverboat dinner cruise that I had kept secret for months and months. Day of, it gets canceled. I was heartbroken. But then we drove on the right side of the car, on the left side of the bike paths, of Ireland, because that's what they are, but we witnessed all the unbelievable shades of green, not to mention the middle finger and a hefty parking ticket as well. Apparently, Americans don't know how to drive on the uh, right side of the car on the left side of Irish bike paths. But then we ended up in a beautiful land called Norway. At the Bergen Airport, we rented a, a rental car, a French model called a Peugeot. And the attendant there at the rental car company, he made sure to tell us that gas stations in Norway are different than they are in the United States. That the green pump handle for gassing up your car is gasoline. And the black gas pump handle is for diesel fuel. So it's quite the opposite of what you have in the States. And I said, okay, yeah, I, I got it. I, just the colors are, are backwards and stuff. Okay. And, and then he, he made sure to stress that the car that we were renting, this French Peugeot 207, it only takes gasoline. Only takes gasoline, no Diesel. Okay, got it. So then we hit the open roads, drove under mountain tunnels so deep and so long you, you couldn't even imagine holding your breath through it. We passed by fjords and rivers, waterfalls and landscape whose beauty just would suck the breath from your lungs. The scenery, it, it welled up in us something, some notion, some idea that no doubt there is a God. Tonight we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study through Paul's letter to the believers at Rome. And last week Dustin spoke about God's good news, how, how it is through faith that a righteous person has life. It was very uplifting and very encouraging, but tonight we get to the nitty-gritty. We get to the tough 
stuff because Paul lays out his argument that he's setting up in the book of Romans. And it starts with the reality that we've got a sin problem. We've got a sin problem. So why don't you stand with me as we begin this uplifting and encouraging passage in Romans chapter 1. We stand here to review the word of God. This is what it says in verse 17 through 19. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. And God, tonight I pray that you would make it obvious to us your truth, your good news, your word. And how we need to base our lives on it. Not on the popular opinion of culture or status quo. But on you and you alone, Lord. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I'll say right off the bat, our passage tonight is altogether difficult. To be honest, this is probably one of the most challenging passages I've ever had the opportunity to speak on. Uh, There's a lot that's going to go into it that might make us feel uncomfortable. It's not that it's difficult to interpret or understand or make sense of. It's altogether difficult because it's difficult to hear. It challenges the status quo and the popular opinion of our culture. It's altogether difficult because it goes against the grain. And so as I lead us head first into this difficulty, I want to do so with great sensitivity. But with boldness and with care. But I also want to do so with honest humility. And as I go against the grain, not for the sake of going against the grain, but with the effort to be biblically correct over and above political and cultural correctness, I'm sure I'm going to get splinters. And so I want to ask for your grace and sensitivity as well. I pray that the difficulty tonight doesn't drive us from church. Because, I mean, what, what is that? We're a family, right? We're the light of the world, a city on a hill. And uh, when you have a disagreement or a conflict or an issue of we don't see eye to eye on this or whatever, do you leave the family? Some people do, and then it's called a broken home. And then we look at our world and see, well, what's wrong with the world? Oh, that's maybe why. So instead of leaving... Let's open up a conversation. I pray the difficulty doesn't drive us from church, but instead into conversations and new insights. And here's a new insight. Hopefully it's not new. It's probably just plain and simple, an insight for you. My words are not the be-all, end-all by any means. And yet, when it comes to the word of God, Scripture, 
Well, that's a different story. Let's open up with some table talk tonight. Talk to the people around you at your tables and address the following questions. Is the Bible authoritative in its nature? Is the Bible the be-all, end-all? Why or why not? Go ahead. It's probably uh, no surprise to you that as a pastor, I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, authoritative in its nature, and the final say, the be-all, end-all, and I think I would add another thing to that. It needs to be interpreted within the context for which it was written and also then applied to our current context with great care and concern. But now, if you don't believe, if you do not believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, authoritative and in nature, in its nature, and it's not the final say, if you don't believe that it is the be-all, end-all, that's fine. But then what we're going to talk about tonight really doesn't have much purpose for you. But then again, the same goes for the scriptures about salvation and healing wholeness and heaven and all that. If the Bible is not authoritative, if it doesn't have much purpose for you, but whether you believe it or not, that doesn't mean that it's not true. Because the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. That's what it says in Isaiah 40. For as it says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires, and sometimes that doesn't feel good. Look at those things, sharpest, double-edged sword, exposed, who wants that? But we aren't here to cherry-pick passages. It's easy to do that in church. Ah, oh, let's just focus on the, the ones that everyone loves. Psalm 23, you know, 139, but only the first part of 139, not, not the rest of it. You know, all those, the, the not fluff ones, but the ones that, that we like to talk about that make us feel good. Jeremiah 29, 11. But when we actually get into the nitty-gritty, sometimes it rubs us the wrong way. Because we want and desire and need and must be transformed by the whole scope of God's good news. So, here we go. Paul describes humanity's terrible situation apart from Christ. Apart, outside of Christ. And it reminds us of the mess that God has rescued us from. His first focus here tonight, which we will explore, is the terrible situation of the Gentiles, the non-Jews before God. Next week, we'll focus on the Jews and their situation before God. But here we begin in verses 18 through 19. It says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. So God doesn't show his anger just for the sake of showing anger, but because of sin and wickedness, the suppression of the truth. I remember being a, a wicked teenager at uh, a friend of mine's house. Uh, we were in a jacuzzi, and before uh, I let your minds drift to any wicked things that could happen in a jacuzzi, it wasn't like that. It was worse. 
straight up wicked. Here's what we would do. We'd suppress our palms or heels or thumbs into the jets of this jacuzzi. And uh, we would create this airtight seal over the jets and give it a second or two and a geyser would erupt some other location on the pool deck, completely destroying my friend's parents' jacuzzi and PVC pipes. Straight up wicked, I know. But that's exactly what happens when people try to suppress the truth. It's obviously going to burst forth. Give it some time. Because the truth is obvious despite wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth and they know they're suppressing it. It is obvious. Verse 19 says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. In theology, there's this distinction made between special revelation and general natural revelation. Special revelation is a saving knowledge of God that we gain through Jesus and Scripture. Special occurrences, events like the burning bush with Moses before this bush that is fully consumed by fire but not yet burned up, that would be an example of special revelation. Or maybe the dove landing on Jesus during the the event of his baptism, the event of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the good news, these are all special revelation. Whereas general, natural revelation is what everybody knows and can see about God because of how God has revealed himself in nature. It's what I experienced as our French Peugeot passed by Norwegian fjords and rivers and waterfalls. The beauty sucked the breath from my lungs. The the scenery welled up something inside of me that no doubt there is a God. What I saw is what Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 declare. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. Let's do another table talk question here. Read Psalm 19, 1 through 6. That means you got to open your Bible or grab one from the back. But then discuss where have you seen the general natural revelation of God? How did it make you feel? Maybe it was a mountainside, maybe it was the ocean, maybe it was the stars at night. Go ahead and read and discuss. It was on one starlit night aboard a warship in the Mediterranean Sea that the great conqueror, the Frenchman, Napoleon, overheard some of his officers having a conversation mocking the idea of God. Napoleon stops by and tells his officers as he waves his hands toward the sky. He said, well, gentlemen, first you must get rid of these.
general or natural revelation, it displays the glory of God, the craftsmanship of his hand. It gives us a basis for truth where we can see and at least realize that we're not the be-all, end-all by any means. And that is the start of knowing God. And as Paul writes, that based off this general natural revelation, people can comprehend. Verses 21 through 22, yes, they, that is the Gentiles, the non-Jews, knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. It's a refusal on their part. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. I think it's fun to look back on the superior wisdom of the ages past, of past generations. How, for instance... In 1933, the key to weight loss was to eat meat on every occasion. Or in 1940, it was actually switched to beans. In 1946, it was two daily doses of ice cream. And in 1950, it was tuna around the clock. Or how about in 1966? Some of you were there. Some of you are the product of 1966. Leading medical textbooks say pregnant women could safely smoke half a pack of cigarettes per day. Or how about dog hair for rabies? It was once believed that a person infected with rabies could be cured by a paste made from the hair of the, of the dog or animal that bit them. I'm not sure how this translated to cure hangovers, but how about lobotomies for headaches? Anyone got a headache in here today? Lobotomy. Let's lobotomize them. Or how about finally giving Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup to babies to help them with crying and teething? It worked because it was made with morphine. Been trying to get my hands on some, but Amazon is out of stock currently. Back order. Well, I have to say that this sure makes me feel good. You know, the wisdom that we've gained from the foolishness of the past. We've gone so far above. But then I realize we've got kids eating Tide Pods and grown men sending dog Snapchats. Not to mention our elected officials sending nude pictures of their external organs all across the world wide web. I mean, your name is Wiener, bro. Come on. <laughs> Have a little restraint. That was cold, right? Verse 22 and 23 says, Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. There's nothing new under the sun. Happens today. Happened back in Rome, the foolishness of refusing God. 
And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Instead of worshiping the immortal, imperishable, incorruptible, ever-living God, they worship mortal, corruptible, subject to decay idols. And it's not that these folks believe that a stone or wood giraffe will bring goodness or blessing, but they believe in the power that this wood or stone giraffe represents something other than the glorious ever-living God. So the wisdom is foolish. The worship is centered on mortal, corruptible, subject to decay, idle representations. And now we could stop there and say, dang, Humanity is doomed. It ain't God's fault. They blew it. They made bad decisions. But no, it goes on. The difficulty deepens and the terrible situation gets, well, terribly worse. The repercussions of bad decisions like pouring gasoline into a diesel engine keep coming. Verses 24 through 25. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. But I thought you would never leave us nor forsake us, God. Absolutely. God's not leaving or forsaking. He's just giving them over to their own desires. Okay, you want to do that? Go ahead. As a result of God handing them over, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Worship of the creator becomes worship of the creature whether in idolatry or in immorality or both. Here, God's wrath is not some sort of outpouring actively of punishment or displeasure, but it's the act of allowing people to receive the repercussions of their own bad decisions. If your heart is set on sinful rebellion against God and every godless thing, what do you suppose the repercussions might be? Happily ever after? Live, laugh, love? Listen, Linda. Come on, Karen. Let's be real. You traded the truth about God for a lie. You traded wrong or right for wrong. Wisdom for foolishness. Righteousness for shame. But, you know, who's really to say what's right or wrong after all? What makes desires shameful in the first place? Well, if you don't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, if you believe it's not authoritative in its nature, if you believe that it's not the final say, if you believe that it's not the be-all, end-all, You're liable to be swept away, swayed by the whims of the status quo and popular opinion of our culture. But I'll be biased if you believe what I believe. 
that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is authoritative in its nature, that it is the final say, that it is the be-all, end-all, you're still liable to be swayed by the whims of the status quo and popular opinions of culture. And it's not that the status quo or popular opinion of our culture is necessarily bad or wrong. But in the end, the grass withers and the flowers fade. The status quo will change. And popular opinion will lose its popularity. But the word of our God stands forever. And therefore... Followers of Jesus must filter through and at times withstand and at times outright challenge the whims of status quo and popular opinion of our culture with the word of God. When we went to go gas up before returning the rental car at the Bergen airport, we pulled off at at a gas station, I don't know, a mile or so from the airport. And standing there at at the pump, I, I thought back to the conversation that I had with the car rental attendant, how he told me at the airport, and I clearly remembered, Green is for gasoline. That's what I told you, right? Green is for gasoline. Black is for diesel. Your French Peugeot 207 only takes gasoline. No diesel. It's what he told me. And I believed him. It seemed right. After all, this is his job all day, every day. But just to be sure... I walked across the gas station and I asked a young man, green is for gasoline, black is for diesel, right? Yep, it's what he told me. I believed him, seemed right after all. But just to be sure, I went over to an elderly gentleman who was also filling up his vehicle and I asked him the same question. Green for gasoline, black for diesel? Yep. That's what he told me. And I believed him. Seemed right after all. So I listened. Seemed right. But when I went to gas up, the nozzle of the green gas pump wouldn't fit correctly. And just in time, before I took another step closer to blowing up the engine of this Peugeot 207 and then being on the hook for the bill, I saw there on the inside of the fuel door cover a little sticker. It said, diesel fuel only. Even though I was told differently, Even though popular opinion seemed to agree, even though it seemed right, it wasn't. Verses 26 through 27, that is why God abandoned them or handed them over to their shameful desires. You could also translate that shameful lusts, degrading passions, vile affections, evil desires. 
Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. We can allow the status quo and popular opinion of our culture to dictate our beliefs, but it might be like pouring gasoline into a diesel engine. There goes the fuel pump and diesel injectors. There goes the engine. Sure, it's a sleek French Peugeot 207, but it won't run. Maybe that's what happens to us, too. As displayed here in this passage, shameful things have their consequences. Some will tell you it's HIV, it's AIDS. I can't vouch for that. I cannot vouch for that. But shameful things have their consequences. Contemporary homosexuals, like some of my friends and family, insist that these verses mean that it's shameful for a heterosexual male or female to engage in homosexual relations, but it's not shameful for a homosexual male or female to do so since homosexuality is such a person's natural preference. Wow, that might be a nice thought for someone trying to make such an argument. That's not what Paul says, is it? Like other Jews of his time, Paul sees sexual activity between persons of the same sex as an expression of deception and disorder within human relations. Paul writes how sexual sin negatively affects a person's relationship with both God and with other people because it's not, as it says, natural or normal according to the structure of reality given in the creation account in Genesis. The only natural sexual relationship the Bible recognizes is male-female within the context of marriage. Talk about splinters. Talk about going against the grain. She's already leaving right now. We got one person leaving. That's my wife. I'm just playing. <laughs> She's like, I'm out of here. We're family. <laughs> but going against the grain, even if the status quo and popular opinion of our culture says otherwise, the word of God calls it a shameful thing. But hear me out. You are not a shameful thing. I'll say that again because I don't think I don't think you heard me. You are not. A shameful thing. I don't know if you're LGBTQIA, but you're loved and welcomed by God. You are loved and welcomed by the people of this church. So whether you're heterosexual or LGBTQIA, just don't be foolish about acknowledging God. Don't be too foolish to acknowledge God. 
Because when I acknowledge God in my personal life, in every darkened corner and alcove and cobwebbed closet, I see how I've got lots of need for transformation in my own life. And transformation begins with the basis of truth, God's truth, that I'm not, and the status quo is not, and the popular opinion of our culture is not the be-all, end-all by any means. But God is, and his word is too. So don't be too foolish to acknowledge God. Verses 28 through 32 says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them or handed them over to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent. That means like rude. Proud and boastful, they invent ways of sinning, new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. And that's how our passage ends tonight. On a difficult note, a vice list. It's actually the longest vice list of bad stuff in the New Testament. It's one long running sentence in the Greek text, and it spells out the truth of what it's like to have a life without God. Don't just think this is the people engaging in shameful things that are experiencing this. This is each and every one of us apart from Christ. This is what our lives are full of. Our passage tonight ends on a difficult note. When we don't recognize and honor and thank God, it leads to foolishness, idolatry, immorality, and various unjust and shameful practices. Minds, hearts, and bodies are all affected, and we live in a state of deception, swept up by the status quo and popular opinion of our culture. Our passage tonight ends on a difficult note, but it's one of great purpose as Paul is still setting up his argument that, man, we are hopeless We are hopeless and unrighteous apart from Christ. We're under the power of sin. We're jacked up. And we need a Savior who can save us despite our jacked upness. And the beauty of it is that we do. But a deeper understanding of the depth of our wickedness It brings a greater understanding of his grace and mercy and his love. It brings that mind-boggling, breathtaking away sensation that the creator loves me. Wherever you're at tonight, God loves you. Despite what you did last year, last summer, 
past, last week, this morning, this afternoon. God loves you. The creator of everything, the one who reveals himself in waterfalls, in oceans, tides, the balances of gravity and nuclear force, the one who creates and sustains loves you. Despite what people have told you, whether they're in church, whatever you've told yourself, whatever the popular opinion of our culture may tell you, whatever the media says, God still loves you. And that's what I want you to walk away with tonight, knowing that we would know full well God loves us and that this isn't the end of the story. That maybe the paths that we're on, the difficulty, the issues that we've got, pray about it. Go to God. Go to people you trust and love. Let's begin a conversation. We're a family, church. And we don't run from family just because we may not see eye to eye or disagree. But we want to be the type of people who don't put gasoline into a diesel engine. Because we want to run how God has created us to run. With purpose and goodness. Mercy and love. Love in this world one person at a time. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you care for us. Even if we see ourselves in this passage or on this list, or man, I'm struggling with this, whether it be sin or greed or hate or envy or murder or quarreling or deception, Whatever it is, maybe it's gossip, God. Maybe we've been stabbing people in the back. Maybe we've been so proud about our position or our standing. Lord, would we return to the place where we know that we are nothing without you, that life without you is brokenness and incomplete. I pray that you would take our brokenness and incompleteness and make it whole and beautiful because that's the way you've designed us to be. Loving, caring, healing and whole. Jesus, I pray that as we tune our eyes to you, that we would fixate on you. And that's all we gotta do. We don't have to tell everyone that they're wrong and sinful and, and bad, but Lord, we need to love people, and you'll sort out the rest. We thank you, Jesus, for the grace you give us and mercy that we need every single day. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.